0: Hi, my name is Tony, and I'm Chris, and we love pop culture. We often find ourselves discussing film, music, literature, and more going down the rabbit hole of how everything is connected. We want to share those moments in pop culture that are seemingly unrelated, but connected by just a few links. Welcome to the Pop Culture Connection. Hello and welcome back to part two of the Pop Culture Connection Horror Movie Special. During the Halloween season, we want to take a break from our usual way of doing things, where we take two seemingly different people or events in pop culture and explore the links that connect them. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we spent that first episode talking about The Exorcist, its impact on pop culture, its impact on us, and the family connection that it has to a very different horror film, The Lost Boys. So we're picking up from there in a part two we'll be discussing one of the stars of the lost boys his connection to another scary movie a legendary horror author directors acknowledging each other's work and a slasher team up that never got made so we hope you enjoy it Began in May, and every month after that, whenever the moon was full, it happened again and again.
1: What was that? It's over there. Don't at me.
0: Nobody knew who. Or what was responsible? Come on! They only knew it had to be stopped. So I know you mentioned uh, earlier. You know we talked about Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Patrick was Michael. You got Kurt Feldman and the other Frog Brother, who I don't yeah, remember. That other guy. That brother, the other he guy. He was cool. the frog brother. Um, but Corey Haim, so he fought some vampires. When he was young, but he also fought a werewolf in Silver Bullet. And he he was, was
1: well-versed in the fighting of the the classic mythical
0: creatures. Only he had fought Frankenstein's monster and mm-hmm. the monster creature squad. from the Black uh-huh. <laughs> and the mummy. He but he knew it. about it. Like, yeah. those
1: guys in the monster squad, like, they lived just a couple streets away.
0: So they were sharing think, information. Yeah, they would know... Uh, Corey Haim, we talked about just, you know, I, I think the the Corey's Feldman and Haim, get a lot of like, jokes about they were just the Corey's to be in a film. But they were both great child actors at the time. Yeah, nothing funny about that. And Silver Bullet, uh, again, 1985. I don't, obviously I didn't see it right away, but... Eventually, you, Eventually you get across it. It's not a, like, top-tier one, but when you start kind of going down the rabbit hole of horror, getting into, like, werewolf stuff. You know, as you do.
1: We all uh, everyone reach a point falls into the where are we, we get into werewolf stuff. You want a silver bullet, huh? Huh?
0: The man Uncle Red had gone to see was more than a gunsmith. He was, Uncle Red said, an old world craftsman. A sort of wizard of weapons. He confirmed the high-grade silver content of my crucifix and Marty's medallion. Melted them down and molded them into a silver bullet. And... That one, uh, that's, that is a fun, a fun movie. It's, the scariest part is Garrett Busey, obviously. <laughs> yeah,
1: as it usually is. And.
0: Uh, but it is a fun little werewolf film. I love a good werewolf movie. And not the best, but yes, good. Yes, Christian Slater, thank you. Nah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think he was just doing Jack Nicholson. Yeah, it, so pretty it much matter. Uh, Silver Bullet is another is uh, a fun one. It's based on a Stephen King yeah. novella.
1: Do, didn't we do that for one of the horror movie marathons?
0: Yes. Yeah. So it, yeah, in the past when we've done horror movie marathons. I think we connected this and uh, Silver Bullet and uh, People Under the Stairs mm, because yeah. it shared an actor. That was between the If you know who that is, let us know. See if you can tell us with a five dollar Olive Garden gift card, and we will give you a hundred percent off a five dollar Olive Garden gift card. Gotcha. Gotcha. Prove it. Uh, but the uh, Stephen King novella, really interesting take on Stephen King called Cycle of the Werewolf. It's almost like a graphic novel um, and goes through every chapter is one month in a year during the full moon of when the werewolf appears. And something about Stephen King that I love is that he would try different things with how the style of how he released his work. Certainly yeah um, he was
1: a purveyor of different uh, bringing on newer technology or modern uh, techniques to push the genre forward. I mean he was famously one of the early adopters of
0: the Mac and uh, word processing and he would he would do things like uh, do a you know, a, a series over the course, releasing a short, a chapter a month over the course of uh, a year. And you can get something like The Green Mile, which turned it, you know, ended up being a, not a horror movie, much like Shawshank Redemption, one of his few non-scary things. But, but he a wonderful is, story nonetheless. Yeah, he's innovative, still innovative and can weave a story. And... You know, long Shawshank, Green Mile, Stand By Me. Um, I don't think Silver Bullet is re- really remembered as a Stephen King story. I think that's Gary Busey's fault as well. Everything's Gary Busey's it, fault. It probably is.
1: Straight jacket. If you over put, here. This, if you come over put here. that straight jacket on me, I'm going to pull your endocrine system out of your body
0: hey.
1: and make a hat out of it.
0: It's going on. But that you know that's all right. I think he he would admit to that anyway. We don't even you know you can't even say enough about Stephen King uh, his contribution to modern horror. Uh, is mean, yeah, he's standing awe? He just go. I go I he, blah, blah, blah. He's anyway. the king. And you know he he did collaborations with other people. He he found the people he connected with. You know, we had talked about George Romero. Stephen King did a lot to uh, collaborate with other horror icons. He had connected on Creepshow with George Romero. Uh, Just a reminder, we had talked about in the last episode, the George A. Romero Foundation. If you go to georgearomerofoundation.org, they are a great group who helps to provide fellowships and scholarships to independent filmmakers and also preserve the works of George Romero, uh, again a, a godfather of horror, especially the modern zombie genre. Uh, Creepshow was a collaboration between those two. They found a uh, kinship and loving the old EC Tales from the Crypt comics, and put together a uh, film that made you that made you feel like you were reading one of those old comic books of several short stories all together in one and a great, you know, there's some comedy to it. It's not super scary, but it's a good uh, tongue-in-cheek 80s fun you know, creepy Yeah,
1: and if you like anthology horror um, it's a a must-watch they do a great job of making it feel with the animation of this is a comic book um, classic anthology style. There's an overarching story that's corny to a degree. That makes it fun uh, if you can vibe with that
0: sort of thing, which we do. Yeah, there's. It's it's definitely good, and the the sequels the same way. Creepshow two has the same elements to it. Um, they tried to do the third one, but it didn't fit really well into no. it. There's a. A series on Shutter right now, a great show. That feels more like a true, yeah. Have, sequel. have you watched those? I watched the. I've watched a few of them, and they are. It does feel like a. Um, the showrunner is Greg Nicotero, who, uh he's worked on The Walking Dead. He's been a director and actor, uh, but he started off as a special effects artist, and uh, especially like Sam Raimi movies and. I uh, got a chance to meet him years back when I went to some Walking Dead event here. Uh, just super cool. Mm-hmm. not a great guy. Um, but he's, yeah, he, understandably, you know, being at that time, being in the industry and studying under some of the guys who worked at Creepshow, Tom Savini was a big fan of that movie and of those old EC Tales from the Crypt books and things like that, which... Tales from the Crypt as its own subject that we can go off on at some later point yeah. as a TV series.
1: But yeah, the movie is just great in and of itself. You get to see uh, King's made a lot of cameos and appearances and things, but as the, the lead and only actor in an entire uh, segment of the film,
0: um, he does a great job. Yeah, that's that's uh, a great segment. Uh, of him yeah, very believable country bumpkin he's just got that His that kind
1: of natural inbred look about him
0: uh kind of lends to the character yeah it it works on a, a couple levels and you get uh z- father zombies getting revenge meteorite plant shit taking over <laughs> you get uh Here's here's the here's the gist. If a meteorite
1: falls near you, uh, don't touch it. Don't touch it, especially if it's still smoking and steaming and glowing. Right. Don't pulsating with light. Just stay away from it. Come back in a couple days when it's cooled off and see what happens.
0: Same thing. um, If you have a terrible wife, don't feed her to a thing in a crate. Mm-hmm. That is found under the stairs.
1: Yes. Don't let Steve Buscemi uh, summon a mummy with Christian Slater. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tales
0: from the Dark Side. We're jumping movies, but I'm but still is, good advice. That is still good advice. That, but that is still considered the true Creepshow Three uh, because it does have collaboration from mm-hmm. Romero and Stephen mm-hmm. King in it, whereas the real Creepshow Three is shit. And um, lastly, if you don't like cockroaches, then, well, I guess fuck them. Don't Then don't like them. But uh, bad things are gonna happen no matter what. But if you do like Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson, mm-hmm. um, hold your breath
1: for a long time. This is a very fun look at them in their kind of well. Leslie Nielsen's obviously on his early career, but. Uh, he was still becoming the Leslie Nielsen as we know him. And I think this film is a great example of why he is that, such an iconic actor.
0: Yeah, you can, uh, you know, there's Frank Drebin and Airplane and Dracula been loving it. And obviously he was a good satire actor, but he played a pretty good bad guy. Uh In a fun and kind of hilarious way. So yeah, just uh, just like with uh, any other anthology series or Twilight Zone or Friday the Thirteenth the series or anything like that, don't be an asshole. Right. It should just be called Nice Try, asshole. The lesson to be learned: be good to other people, or you know, get ya get a comeuppance in a gruesome way, or even
1: you just might anyway, even if you are good to people. <laughs>
0: I could
1: hold my breath for a long
0: time (laughs) Uh, but uh, Stephen King like we were talking about Contribution to Creepshow uh, was also one of the reasons that Evil Dead, the original 1981 Evil Dead, did as well as it did. Sam Raimi, and, along with Bruce Campbell and Rob Tappert, they were friends in college and they wanted to make their own movie. They made Within the Woods as a little short to say, to sell the studios, hey, we can make this horror movie. And they ended up being able to make the original Evil Dead. Obviously, it wasn't a big budget thing at the time. Early 80s, it wasn't what everyone was expecting. And was released (laughs) in a couple of theaters. And it found its frame. But it was Stephen King's review. He was able to see it. And, you know, the, the master of horror at the time, saying that something was a scary, good movie, was enough to blow up recognition of evil Dead. yeah it's still like
1: this today you know like we were talking somebody uh, mentions your name or says what you do is good that can change everything
0: yeah yeah that just that adds to the number of people who want to seek it out you know, oh i'm interested in this because i like this thing i'm gonna check out this thing so you know, yeah. Many thanks to Stephen King for bringing attention to Evil Dead. Uh, that's another one that I didn't just—I dis- didn't discover, even though it came out, you know, early '80s. I didn't discover until my teen years when I first saw Evil Dead Two. Yeah, well, I you saw the sequel first. Your parents
1: aren't taking you to see Evil Dead, right? As a toddler, <laughs> as a toddler,
0: <laughs> when I was three. Uh, but it is those, like, sleepovers with at friends' houses where you're allowed to rent whatever movie you want. And, you know, if you're into horror stuff, if you, your parents are cool with it, they'll let you in. I saw Evil Dead 2 before I saw the first. Which, Evil Dead. in a way, isn't, is it, Evil Dead. isn't it just
1: a remake of, like, hey, we can do this better.
0: The first 15 minutes... 15 to 18 minutes are a remake, and then it goes on from there. Yeah. Um, and for as good and,
1: and groundbreaking and do-it-yourself as part one was, part two just blew the lid off.
0: And had and added in the, the Three Stooges slapstick mm-hmm. type stuff that that and made Ash. Yeah, made Bruce Campbell's career. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, if it just would have been Evil Dead, I don't think he. It, would have no, it wouldn't have been but, who he was. But make yeah, when you see Evil Dead two, come together as a thing, and then I went back and saw Evil Dead one, and it is a more straightforward, scary, flat out horror film, and I'm glad that it ended up the way that it is because then it provided army of darkness right and yeah and That's, that whole world that it opened up um
1: which uh, is your litmus test for uh if somebody can can hang with you yeah army yes if that is don't long, I, if yeah. they don't like
0: army of darkness they're not for you that was for a while um when i was in my dating world uh we were i my uh my test be watching Army of Darkness together, and if they got it, if they liked it, then they were for me. And if they oh, didn't, cool. I was like, I can't. This isn't gonna work. This isn't gonna work out. If you don't, if you don't get it, you're not for me. <laughs> and you know, think of that as you will. It's a good litmus test. You know where you stand after watching Army of Darkness. I think so. You know, it's a very disparate. Types of people, and uh, I, I did not like them, but we're not going to work out. That's, yeah, you know, not in the cards. Four hearts, eight of spades, two of spades, jack of diamonds, jack of clubs. Oh, why have you disturbed our sleep? Awakened us from our ancient slumber. you And uh, so I am glad that uh, Stephen King did kind of champion the original Evil Dead. Uh, something that you might notice when you're watching it is when they do first go down into the cellar, there is a poster for the 1977 Hills Have Eyes by Wes Craven. Uh, that Sam Raimi purposely put in there as, like, you think that was scary, well, what about this? And that kind of became a back-and-forth between Raimi and Wes Craven.
1: Yes, and uh, certainly a scary film, uh, especially for its time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. pretty much the idea of the... What would you call it? The P- mute, mute, <laughs> mutated... Uh,
0: Nuclear created,
1: nuclear created, desert dwelling, dwelling
0: yeah, uh, biker, uh, Michael Berryman <laughs> whatever they were, <laughs> in the hills just like I'm, we're gonna. Wow, that peep, fam, normal families around. We have that. It created a keep, trope
1: that we can't define, but yet you know what
0: it is. Now, there's there's nothing like that one, but there's also nothing like Evil Dead. And it was cool to see them kind of, like, nod and respect each other as kind of one-upsmanship. Yeah, yeah The Hills Have Eyes. Again, it's a product of its time. and The remake was made to make money, which is different than made to shock or inspire fear. And you can't replicate that, no matter what you do.
1: No, at that time... Craven was already becoming kind of the elder statesman of the horror genre, even before he made *Nightmare on Elm Street*, probably his defining
0: piece. Right, and so between that and *Last House on the Left*, mm-hmm. uh, at least in at least in you know smaller groups, you had people who recognized Wes Craven as someone who was doing something different and more shocking than what was. Currently being targeted as hoarder at the time. Yeah. And it was. Yeah. Um,
1: it, it bordered on uh, snuff. Some, some people would call you a snuff, or they thought it was a little too obscene.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you, yeah, and when you, you know, looking back at it, it's just that that, that that was made in by today's standards is, is shocking. There's some stuff that it pales in comparison to what. We can show now, and there's other stuff that could never be made. Yeah, it was a product of its time, I think, uh, more so than other
1: movies. But by the time he was able to get the experience working on those films, by the time he cultivated Nightmare on Elm Street, it, it all came together. And I think people don't, because of what the franchise became, people don't realize what a, a intense film the original Nightmare on Elm Street was. And you tend to think of Freddy in those films as being a bit comical, and that's definitely what it, it came. In but the, the first one was not nope. like that at all. It was a true, pure horror movie, and uh, it it lived up to its billing.
0: Yeah. Pretty, uh, Freddy ended up, in the later sequels, becoming pretty much Wile Coy- Coyote <laughs> and just developing whatever he could to kill people. But in the first film, you can't not dream. You can't not fall asleep. Uh, and Nightmare on Elm Street was became seminal, and Freddy Krueger became seminal slasher material. Uh, I think it's interesting, and then going back, that while trying to fall asleep, Nancy, the main character, is watching Evil Dead mm-hmm. on television... There's the back and forth. And uh, Heather Lagenkamp, who portrayed Nancy, is one of the three uh, sisters from the sitcom, just the ten of us, to be in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. <laughs> Which. It's pretty good uh, pooling there, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, because there was only a handful of Lubbock's well, that two, were women. two handfuls. Well, yeah. There's ten of them. that were. Brooke Thies, who also portrayed Debbie in part four, she got turned into a cockroach. It's a cockroach girl. And then squashed. And then um, there was One of the more Joanne s- Willett was on part oh, yeah. two. She got was on the bus. She got the... <laughs> well, what's that? <laughs> she, I'm doing a hand motioning. She got the claw through the chest oh, yes, at the okay. end. So, yeah. I thought you were saying she got the Surf City. She yeah. got the old hand nearby her. <laughs> so there's an extra connection for you there. Is uh, Just the Ten of Us, which was a spin-off of Growing Pains, which has nothing nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, and then Evil Dead 2 came along, which is kind of what we're talking about. That was what I saw first. And that just kind of that kind of, like, brought me online when I first saw it. You're like, oh, okay. I I think I see how this can go. Yeah. Oh, I didn't
1: know you could do this with I didn't know you could do this. I, I didn't see. know it could be absurdly scary, absurdly funny, and just absurdly absurd. And uh, All at once. Yeah, kind of taking us back to our last episode where we talked about Clue. You know, we used words like madcap and zany. And I think you could... Attribute those to Evil Dead Two.
0: Yeah, and that's all. That's all Sam Raimi. It just he knows how to find that central link between all of those things of scary and funny and crazy and madcap, and making them all fit together. There's no one else quite like that. But because Wes Craven had used Evil Dead in Nightmare on Elm Street. Sam Raimi at the same time is like, well, I'm going to throw a little bit back, and I will put um, a little reference to A Nightmare on Elm Street Navel Evil Dead 2, and that's why in one of the scenes in the basement, you can see Freddy Krueger's glove hanging from the ceiling in the uh, when Ash goes down to collect the pages from the Necronomicon. Mm-hmm. So a little back and forth which I I do really appreciate, and I love that, though. They weren't, like, competing against each other.
1: No, and that's what's great about, uh, like I said before, uh, Craven kind of being this— he's established as a filmmaker, and he could just easily say, yeah, it's great that you like my stuff, kid. Uh, But here he is supporting an up-and-coming director and saying, yeah, your stuff is good, too, and
0: so I'll I'll put your stuff— in my movie. So then you you move a few years down the road to 1993 uh you get Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday which was not the Final Friday because he ended up in space and then fighting Freddy Krueger and so far as we know that was the final. That was at the time the Final Friday. Um but recently once that you noticed that it not only has the Necronomicon in it, but also the dagger from Evil Dead 2. Uh, so kind of like a callback to these are the things that can take out whatever is possessing Jason Voorhees and and finally put him to rest. So, yeah, it kind of begs the question, are these
1: two things going on in the same universe? Mm-hmm. Now that we've seen some of this stuff, we've seen Freddy's glove, We now we have Jason, we have uh, the... The callback to Evil Dead. It's like there's all this stuff
0: going on at the same right. with within the same realm. And the, before the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there was this like smaller group of movies that that happened. That oh, okay, maybe these do all exist. And I think everyone at the time who was either a Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street fan was like, well, "What would happen if Freddy?" fought Jason uh-huh. like who would win in that battle. And then right. I remember maybe 1989, 1990. Being t- talked about. Talking about that with my friend, yeah. reading Fangoria and them talking about this might be made someday. It took almost two decades yeah. for them to make it for Avers Jason. Yeah. When they could have just put it on pay-per-view. It would have, yeah. And, and everybody still, it. still, yeah, it still would have made money. Uh-huh. But they finally, yeah, did... Put it together, Freddy versus Jason, at the end of... Jason goes to hell, Freddy's glove comes up and grabs Jason's mask, pulls him down. That was kind of like the wink to the audience oh. that this might happen. But it didn't happen until, you know, 10 years later. Again, almost 20 years after the first discussion of whether these two should ever meet. Um, brought the two icons together. And well, this
1: is Hollywood, I mean... Ideally, from a story standpoint, you can make it happen pretty easily. But because of who owns what property and the rights. uh, It wasn't until New Line acquired
0: the rights to Jason Voorhees as a character that they could actually do it. And for the most part, it's not great. But I like how they set it up. That no one was afraid of Freddy anymore. They had erased Freddy Krueger from Springwood, Ohio as a thing so that no one even thought about him. He needed to get back from hell because he was trapped. He didn't have enough power. He found one other being in hell that could kind of take over and tricked it into going to kill for him in his name again, but couldn't stop it. Because once he goes, once Jason goes on his warpath, there's no stopping it, and then they have to battle each other, both in the dream world and physical world. I had to search the bowels of hell, but I found someone.
1: Someone who'll make them remember.
0: He may get the blood, but I'll get the glory. And that fear is my ticket home.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, it's a fun film, but because of two decades of hype, uh, it could never live up to its billing. Right.
0: No matter who you are, I remember going to see it in the theater. I think they should have split theaters into Jason and Freddie fans, but they're all kind of mixed. Didn't really work out. Um, what I thought was cool was uh, in an early draft, one of the possible endings had Freddie and Jason being dragged down to hell. Kind of lunging at each other and having chained hooks pull them back, (laughs) revealing Pinhead, who is something who says something to the effect of "Now, gentlemen, what seems to be the problem?" and then incorporating Hellraiser's Pinhead into that. Or even or, if
1: it was just that, it would have been right.
0: Cool. If it were just they wouldn't go from there, and you just got oh shit! Now those two are now that brings that whole uh, series right. in, into this universe. I think that it's something that uh, I think they continued on in comics. They also continued uh, Freddie versus Jason versus Ash in the comic books mm-hmm. and brought in the Necronomicon. People trying to re- resurrect Jason and. Ash finding out and having to stop both Freddy and Jason from... Yeah, which we know from Friday 13th Part 6, you don't do. You don't want to do. You don't do it. I don't think anyone ever learns from from those. And then Freddy vs. Jason became kind of the start of the multiverse, bringing, you know, Alien mm. vs. Predator stuff. And that for a time, there was a talk of a pinhead vs. Michael Myers... Uh, crossover. So, you know, looking into it, I saw that uh, Dave Parker, filmmaker, uh, he went on to do the Dead Hate the Living, The Hills Run Red. He pitched the idea that basically we would see why Michael Myers from Halloween couldn't die. Uh, he would have received the puzzle box from the man in black from the later Halloween films as a child while trick-or-treating. And he was possessed by Lord, the Lord of the Dead, Sam Hain, which is a uh, play on Solomon. So, yeah. And uh, there was, well, that would have opened up the meeting between Michael Myers and Pinhead when a, a group of people tried to destroy the Myers home and find the puzzle box that would summon Pinhead, who would recognize Sam Samhain, and they would battle eventually in hell and kind of do a separate once they do Freddy versus Jason, then I could do Myers versus Pinhead. But it never took off past the planning stage. Yeah, I'm kind of glad it didn't.
1: I, right, there is that the the fanboy in you that does like the Freddy versus Jason, but at the same time, uh, that seemed to feel a bit more natural as whereas Myers versus Pinhead would seem kind of yeah, you really have to set that up and. There's a lot of prerequisites. It's
0: God's Bambi. (laughs) Yeah.
1: A lot of stuff just doesn't follow, and
0: it seems maybe that was a bit forced. Yeah. And so. and Yeah. You know, you like them both, and, you know, it'd be like Leatherface versus Candyman. Yeah. You you just Uh, had to find some weird way to get them together, and it's not quite the same. So that is where we are going to leave for now. Uh, So, so far we've covered The Exorcist, The Lost Boys, Stephen King, Evil Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and a halloween slash Hellraiser crossover that never came to be. In Episode 3, we will finish up and talk more about Michael Myers, a horror classic from Alfred Hitchcock, a real-life maniac that inspired a few of the film's biggest villains, and more. So that'll be out next Sunday, which is Halloween, and we do hope to have you there with us. Uh, in the meantime, please feel free to find us on Linktree. That's link.tr.ee backslash the PCC cast, where we have links to all of our social media profiles. Uh, we are at the PCC cast at gmail.com, the PCC cast on Twitter and Instagram on Facebook. You can find us at the Pop Culture Connection. Uh, We also added our audiograms to YouTube. And as always, uh, we updated our Spotify playlist to include some music discussed and inspired by these episodes. So, Until next time, stay connected and stay scared.